Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Delighted you joined us today. Episode 5 is an interview with Mary Shores, author of Conscious Communications, a step-by-step guide to harnessing the power of your words to change your mind, your choices, and your life. Mary is recognized as an innovative thought leader and has spent over a decade teaching businesses and individuals how to identify their goals, create new ways of thinking, and take action to create meaningful results. Welcome, Mary Shores. It's wonderful to finally meet with you and, and share some stories. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. Thank you so much for considering my book. Well, it's it's a wonderful book. Uh, before we start sharing your, your wonderful book, Conscious Communications, I, I have a, a, fun, a fun question because I don't believe I've ever met someone who runs a collection service. So tell us about Mid-State Collection Solutions. What, do, what is it like to start that type of service or a, co- or a collection agency? What is it? Well, I started it 20 years ago, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, when I when I started it, what it was like was just very much doing what was on my desk on any given day in any given moment and marking it off the list because when I was 24, I didn't know what I didn't know. And my naivete really served me well because if I knew now, if I, if I knew then what I know now, I don't know what I would have been thinking. <laughs> what's, what's, what's something our audience doesn't know about collection agencies? That is such a fascinating question, and it's one that no one has ever, ever asked me before. Okay, I think one of the things that the average person doesn't know is that we are the highest regulated industry as well as the highest litigated industry. We also have the most complaints through the, um, I think it's the FCC, that they had to actually create a create an entire system just to handle complaints that come in from collection agencies. Wow. Now that I had no idea of, but see, now it explains why you wrote this book in part. One other fun thing. We both have autistic sons. What has being the parent of an autistic son taught you? So many things. Uh, My son is 17. I'm not sure how old your son is. 18. Um, I would say that 18. Okay. So we're in similar stages. Uh, my son is considered Asperger's, and I think that, you know, there's such a spectrum with autism that depending on where someone's child is, their their experience is going to be completely different. You know, one of the things that taught me very early on was I had to let go of this concept of what my family was going to look like, what my children were supposed to do, because I think that I was in the belief system of the family I grew up in. So my dad uh, was very athletic, coached my all of my brother's various sports teams. He was the vice president of the uh, refereeing or officiating association in our state, which meant that I grew up very much at baseball games, basketball games, football games. And one of the first things I remember is having to let go that my son was not going to be the star basketball player. And that's just the first one of the things that you let go of. And I, I've also noticed like when sometimes people will say, you know, people say kind comments and they don't know the impact that it's going to have on you, but people will try to compare their child to my child. 
And sometimes I just want to say, you know, like, oh, my teenager acts that way too. And I'm like, well, sure. But your teenager is going to go on to get a driver's license, go to college, get married, and sort of like live that trajectory of what we view as a quote unquote normal life. And so I've had to like completely um, unravel my expectations of what a life is going to be like and understand that my, my biggest goal for my son and my biggest dream for him is to be happy. I really like that comment. The expectations part hit us very hard. My wife, Cheryl, and I, very, very early also, we have an Aspie-type uh, spectrum situation with our son, Jack. And I think it's a very fundamental thing for a parent to realize there's all these external expectations, but the ultimate role of the parent isn't to necessarily address those. It's to actually address our child and provide them what they need. Anyway, that's that's a neat start. How do people find you, Mary? How do we find you on the web or social media? Well, I am relatively easy to find. So my name, Mary, M-A-R-Y, Shores, S-H-O-R-E-S. I have a website that's maryshores.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just, you know, the typical ways with my name. Great. Well, let's let's turn to the book then. The title of your book is Conscious Communication, and I'm going to keep saying that over and over again so our audience goes out and buys it. But what's that de- what's that definition mean to you? It's a special definition and what led you to create it? So, Conscious Communications, the definition of the book to me is is all about the folks in life that are seekers and are always wanting to get to the next level level of their development. You know, I've not been a fan of the term self-help because I think it implies that we're broken, but I am a fan of growth and development. And so to me, there's so many ways, as you know, to grow and develop yourself. And so this, this book and this title is really exploring the different ways that you can begin to grow and cultivate your own personal growth. And whether you do that through words, whether you do that through actions, the feedback cycle is going to come around and adjust all of the other things. Because sometimes I think we get into this place of having a lot of rules, like you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. And what what led you to create it? Was it business? Was it personal? Something must have led you to to embark on this. So it was based on years ago, I created a communication strategy that I used because in my collection agency, the, the business that I own, my mission was really all about helping people feel good about paying their debt. Because the thing about debt, and it's not something we talk about often, is that having a debt is a psychological burden and it's a burden that builds a brick wall between people and like living the life of their dreams. You know, how many people might say, I want to start a business. I want to do this or that, but I, but they have this feeling, this underlying foundational feeling of shame and unworthiness because of whatever debt situation they may have. And so that, you know, that was 10, 15 years ago in exploring that, helped me create a a communication strategy that would use words to stimulate people to feel good about the fact that they were actually doing something to rectify their problem instead of using words, which the industry definitely does, which is why they have the highest level of complaints, using words to keep people in that low-level 
you know, keeping them down. But what I discovered years later was that all of the things that I was teaching in my communication strategy were true to life. So it was not just about professional development, but because it's not just debt that is a psychological burden. It is many, many things in our lives in, in many, many areas, you know, so like even for me personally, just that I can tell you that the belief systems that I had, especially early on over having an autistic child, they, they were deep in me and they were definitely building that brick wall, the same as if I'd had a debt. Pretty neat. It's, it's fantastic that embarking on a business, which can often be impulsive or intuitive, led you to a deeper personal journey, you know, one before the other. Throughout your book, it's very clear that journaling is, imp is important to you. What does journaling mean to you and how does it affect your own energy level? That's an, that's an interesting question. And I, um, I have not actually ever considered myself a journaler. So I think that I'm pragmatic in my, in my thinking and my thought processes and the, the exercises, the coaching exercises I suggest in the book are meant to carve out new neural pathways for yourself because these belief systems that I mentioned before are really, um, grown from seeds that were planted deep in your subconscious mind, you know, in some cases, maybe even back to childhood, but that the way to get control over your behaviors and your habits and your patterns is to start at that level of the subconscious programming. And so to me, journaling is a way or the exercises in the book are a way to carve out and begin to plant seeds for new neural networks to form that are going to support you in the skill set, in the beliefs, and, and in the patterns that you're going to need that will get you closer to your goals. That's the best answer I've ever heard, Mary, for what journaling can do for someone. It often comes up in our leadership excellence courses very early, and people often look at you strangely when you bring up the concept of journaling, wondering if it's a diary or something else. But the whole idea of creating something new and, and making that, that neural connection, it's, it's very deep. I'm definitely going to reference that quite a bit. Speaking of neuroscience, it's a significant feature in your book. How, how, uh, what other ways can we use our nervous system, if you will, to make better decisions? Hmm. Using your nervous well, keeping it healthy is, is the starting place for that. Because you cannot, so the whole point, let me step back a second. What we're talking about with the nervous system is that your nervous system is going to be what is calling up or conjuring, triggering, stimulating chemicals to, to run through your body. Now, there is a whole spectrum of chemicals that, that really keep us going. They keep us alive, but they also produce emotion and feelings. So like, for example, uh, an event in your life could, could um, create dopamine and serotonin or an event in your life could create uh, stress chemicals such as adrenaline and cortisol. You know, other things might create testosterone, but these chemicals that are flooded through your body are really your point of your point of how you're going to respond in a situation. So uh, when you when you dial it back to what you said, like how can we use our nervous system to help us in decision making? My answer would be. We need to be investing in making sure that we are taking care of ourselves in a way that is keeping those 
chemical recipe in our body in a neutral standpoint because you cannot make a logical decision from a heightened state of fight or flight. That's a really... You will always see things worse than they are. That's a really good answer. I think there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of literature and a lot published and certainly in, in, in media that we should just get healthy to be healthy or to look good. But you're taking this a lot deeper. It's not, you're, you're making a great case that, that we can, we can create, create our own future, if you will, through good decisions, but we can't do that if we don't take care of ourselves. It's, it's, a, it's a very attractive thought. You also cited Carl. J Let me just. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. I want to. I want to put it into a real world world example for your audience. So what I what I mean by that is if I have just had a stressful event in my home that has triggered my fight or flight and it has caused a, my body to be flooded with stress chemicals, then that is affects the actual um, your your all of your uh, energy and power in your body is going to your protective modes and it's actually not so it's the blood supply is not going to your thinking sec sections of the brain it's not going to things that are going to support rational decision making and so if i'm in a stressful state and then someone comes to me to ask me a question like one of my staff members the the answer that i'm going to give them is not going to be a well thought out answer that's a, per that's but, a perfect know, example back the layers Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I like that a lot. We we use a a tool called Energize to Lead in our in our workshops, and a big part is to try to get us in tune with our energy levels. And you've tapped into it in a very deep way there, based on neuroscience. I like that. Now you also cited Carl Jung and synchronicity, which reminded me of a, a book by Dr. Bateman called Connecting with Coincidence. How do you how do you feel about coincidence? So I feel so many different ways about this. I mean, I think I could go into you, when you talk about synchronicity, you could the, the spectrum is anywhere from people who see signs and everything, you know, like, oh, I passed by the, the bullet, the, the what do you call it? The uh, billboard. And it said this word. And that meant now that I have to like fly to the other country and do this. You know what I'm saying? It's like they make these connections sometimes that are not there. Mm -hmm. And then they call that a synchronicity. Well, humans, human beings are wired and genetically programmed to be meaning making machines. And what that means is we can make meaning and connections out of things that simply do not exist. So that would be like one of the end of the spectrum. But another end of the spectrum is also to understand that our brain is built to make those connections. And so if you've ever had the experience of reading, you know, opening a magazine or opening a book, and it seems like a certain section or a few words just jumped off the page. And honestly, it's not even if you've had that situation, because I know that you have. It's just part of being human. That there's a reason that that happens. It's because your optical nerve has a, goes as a direct connection to the deepest part of your brain. And without you consciously being aware of it, you've actually already read every word on the page. And then there is a part of your brain that will direct you to the section that you needed to hear or see in that moment. Does that make sense? It does. It's and it's powerful. And, I really like the phrase okay. the meaning making part. Yes. 
it's 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 fascinating to think about that. But here's another thing that I want to that I want to say about these synchronicities is that the more that you train your brain, you know, like if you think of your brain as a muscle and the more that you prime it for things that you want in your life or the more that you program yourself into the direction of what you want, the more synchronicities you're going to notice all around you. And the reason for that is just like what I said about our subconscious already reading the words on the page. It's you'll notice all these new opportunities, but here's the thing. There was always that level of opportunity around you. It's just that your ability to recognize them and be aware of them becomes like exponentially more powerful in your life. Now, I'm also going to bring something that's more spiritual into the mix because um, I also believe that there's, I sometimes call it spooky action at a distance. So like an Einstein phrase there, but there is something that comes to play that the more you pay attention to the synchronicities, the signs, the connections, the coincidences in life, the more they seem to produce. And it's almost like, you know, whether you say God, the universe, your higher self, whatever it is, someone's spiritual foundation is, I, I think that there is a there is enough evidence, at least in my own personal life, that the more that I follow those synchronicities and actually take action on them, the more that the universe like meets me halfway. It, does that make it sense? It does, and I think I think it's a very appealing, intuitive point because we've all done something similar. For instance, when we've purchased a car, after we purchase that car, or even when we research it, then we start noticing it everywhere. And it sounds to me as though the analog is when we're getting connected with where we want to go and that sense of direction or goal setting you you describe in the book. Then all of a sudden, it, it's probably going to seem like we're lucky. That all these things start dropping in because we've we've so aligned ourselves, we're we're tuned in to notice all these things that can happen and probably then will. So that's what it sounds like to me. A friend of mine says a friend of, a friend of mine says that there's no such thing as luck, and I agree with him. And he says um, luck, and he has this beautiful way of putting it, but it's something like when preparedness meets opportunity. Exactly. So because you have done all of these things in your life to be prepared, then when the opportunity is there, you you are ready for it. And I know that that I just I think that's such an interesting point that uh, you know, the CEO of my publishing company, I love this phrase he uses as well. He says uh people don't realize it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. So <laughs> What we see is somebody like exploding onto the scene and like they got this like overnight success. We don't see the 10 years of when they were beating the street and, and cultivating their trade and their practice and being consistent and perhaps not even getting paid to do it. But that 10 years is what led to that quote unquote lucky break. Indeed. It's, it often, it's often the story, I believe, also of an entrepreneur or, or a writer. Let's pause for a quick break. What places to visit remain on your bucket list? Choink is teaming with Amazonia Expeditions, the Amazon jungle's leading ecotourism operator, to introduce the Amazon Leadership Experience in 2018. Join us in the Tuayo Reserve to experience the most biodiverse region yet studied in the world while also becoming an energized leader. Please contact us if your organization is interested in this unique once-in-a-lifetime experience. That was quick. Now let's let's um, turn back to some more of the physiology that you referenced in your book. You've been mentioning a little bit about it, but you you observed 
that our fight or flight system can't distinguish between real and perceived threats. What are the implications for each of us at an individual level when we consider that? So again, um, you know, the fight picture in your mind, what fight or flight means, it means we're, we're coming out swinging, you know, we're, we're, our body is flooding our system with chemicals that are putting us in a survival mode. And so part of the implication is we're showing up like a fight to the death for perhaps a Monday morning coffee meeting. But because there's something that meeting with your boss or that particular person, or maybe it's a client, there's, there's something in that relationship that triggers you and triggers this fight or flight response, which means that when you, when you show up to that meeting, you're showing up in this heightened, um, heightened state of vigilance. Like, like with battle armor on. Yes. There you go. So how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, can I tell you like a hilarious story? Please. Because this, we all do, we do this. Okay, so I'm going to tell you this story. Last year, this is a ridiculous story, but it's true. And it's my story. So last year, it was a uh, holiday time. And at my company, every year we do this holiday picture. And I'll tell you what happened last year. The people that do the holiday picture, they delegated it to these two new employees. And... <clears throat> I'm uh, watching all of this stuff from the sidelines, gearing up for the holiday picture. And it seems like there's a little bit too much effort going into the holiday picture. So I walk in that day and here's what I see. Nobody is at their desk working and they're all decorating an entire half of the office. I'm talking full on decorations, like wrapping paper all over the wall. They have went to the dollar store or something and they've bought all these crafts. And they're making like Santa faces and reindeer faces and like, I don't even know what, like, like kindergarten level craft project going on in the break room. And I, I'm watching it and I'm trying not to be, you know, like that, that asshole Scrooge boss. So I'm sort of letting things go, right? I'm letting him go, but I'm getting triggered that whole time. So we finally go to take the picture and all of a sudden they tell me that we're not taking the picture in separate groups. We're going to all get in the picture at the same time. So of course that leads to mass chaos because nobody's ever standing in the right place. Not everybody's smiling at the same time. And it's, to me, it just doesn't seem efficient. So after two or three minutes of this, I just snap. And I mean, you know what I mean by snap? Like I just like systems crash. <laughs> I'm like, all right, we're done. Everybody back to their desk. It was a total, but that's what I mean. So that's, that I was in my fight or flight, okay, and that is the that is the reality of what happens is you're in your fight or flight, and to all of these people, it looked like I was flipping out, like the boss is flipping out, okay. But I used that experience, like I did a root cause analysis, and I met with my team, and I said to some of the more veteran staff members, I said, at what point did you know I was going to flip out? over this Christmas picture. And some of them, you know, they all knew ahead of time, all of them. It was unanimous. Like they knew when they were doing the decorating, they knew when the crafts were being bought. They knew, they knew way early on. And I said, well, if you knew, why didn't you do anything to intervene? And they kind of all scratched their head. Like that was an interesting question that I had posed to them is like, 
so many places in this story that something could have been prevented. And to understand that what I was reacting about wasn't really what the problem was. So whatever is triggering you, that's not really what the issue is. The issue was nobody was answering the phone. I run a call center. So if everyone's up decorating, if everyone is pretending like their jobs don't exist because it's holiday time and we need to take holiday pictures, then what, what was happening to me inside of my body was knowing that my business was not being ran and the phones were not being answered and people really were not serving our customers the way that our customers and clients are supposed to be served. And so that was really what I was reacting to. But then you have these like cultural expectations, like, you know, rules go out the window because it's holiday time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of struggling against that, but going backwards, what the lesson was for my staff is, okay, let's use this as an example to say, if you're going to, and of course, you know, these were two new employees. They wanted to make this the biggest, best Christmas picture in the history of holiday pictures. So of course they went completely bonkers and overboard because they actually thought that that was going to impress me. So when you peel back the layers of this kind of silly situation, there's lots of lessons that can be learned in it, leadership lessons. So I told my staff, I said, if you're going to give a project over to another employee, you need to give them, you need to establish their level of authority. Like these people had no authority to take people away from their jobs to decorate like Christmas land in the office. And what are the expectations? The expectations are that there still has to be people answering the phone, even during the photo shoot portion of the picture. And, you know, what is the criteria? Like, what are the boundaries? How much money should be spent? How much time should be spent? So I was able to take that and, and really explore an entire lesson of boundaries, expectations, and level of authority, all because I had a systems crash. It's a, it's, it's a great story and a, and a pretty and a pretty extensive analysis and lessons learned. I really like that. You, you, you put the word uh, to Wanda from Frank Green Tomatoes in the book, and I, I really like the way you use that. Can you tell the audience what that means? Well, I'm really, I, I've been exploring this idea of becoming our true selves, like really becoming who we are. And I think that in the space of personal development, especially in the last five years, I hear this word a lot, purpose, like the big P word, I call it. We have to be living our purpose. And people are lost with that word. Like, what does that mean? Or I don't have a purpose or I don't know what my purpose is. And I'm still sort of cultivating this, this thought more and more in my life and how I can teach it to others that really your purpose is whatever gifts that you were born with. We were all born with a set of traits. And the, the idea of Tawanda was to let your alter ego come through, come through you. So in the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, we have the Kathy Beatty character and she's sort of this, you know, middle-aged housewife and her life doesn't really have a lot of meaning. And she meets this older woman who has all of these adventures. And in the Beatty character, her life has no adventure. So she starts sort of craving this other side of life that is very adventurous. And she creates this alter ego to Wanda. And when she's to Wanda, she's empowered. You know, she doesn't, she's like, has this take no, take no crap attitude. So it completely changes her life. But I started thinking like, well, what if, 
what if we all did that? Like, what if we put our alter egos, that side of ourselves that we sort of squash down, what if we let that, that side of our personalities out more and more? Because maybe we're a little bit afraid or we hide that side of ourselves, but the reality is that side of ourselves is so powerful. And when we let that out, we can create change in our life because we are given these gifts we're born with them. And those gifts are actually our purpose in life. And when you learn how to take your gifts and apply it to whatever it is you're doing, like, so for example, for me, myself, uh, years and years ago, I had this existential crisis because I wanted to take a more spiritual path or more of a path to like self-actualization and enlightenment in life. And I was terrified that that would not be in alignment with my career as a debt collector. But it was not until the moment when I was able to tap into all the gifts and qualities as a human being that I was bestowed upon in this life. And I brought that to my career that not only was I able to transform my own business but now looked upon as an industry leader and powerhouse in transforming the entire collections industry, which has now become my goal. And what were those gifts? It was writing, speaking, teaching. You take whatever your gifts are and you apply it, you apply it to whatever it is, is your J-O-B or what you're doing. And if you just let that be in charge, put Tawanda in charge, you're going to see things move powerfully. I, I love it. It's off, It's off the, obviously, obviously a good movie as well. Now to do that, you, you have a, a nice rule. You have a, prior, a prioritization rule, an 80-20 rule, but yours is called cleanser clog. Can you share a couple examples how you use that every day? I would love to. So that's my very favorite part of the book, by the way. And the actually that chapter is the chapter I wrote first. So I wrote that chapter and the entire rest of the book was sort of um, written around that chapter. And cleanser clog is really about this. If we can consider, and I think that most of us can accept in today's world, that infinite possibilities ex exist in, in our life. You know, But when we think of infinite possibilities, it doesn't just mean that the possibilities are always positive and good. You know, The possibility exists that I'm going to fail or file bankruptcy. The possibility exists that I'm going to become a best-selling author. So infinite means good and the bad and everything in between. But how do you change something from a possibility to a probability? A probability meaning that it is more likely to happen. And my, one of my favorite quotes in the book from Chaz Palminteri is that the choices you make will shape your life forever. And so I became very struck by this just very like life-changing quote for me to understand that it's the choices we make in the thin sliced moments of life that are connecting us to those more beneficial possibilities in life. And so then it became like, well, how can I teach people to make better choices? And so I do that through the lens of cleanser clog and I can use um, a relationship to, as an example. So I have, you know, we all have different relationships in our life with our children, with our significant others, with our coworkers, you know, with, with our friends and understand that everything you say, everything you do, every word that comes out of your mouth, every gesture in a relationship is either going to cleanse that relationship or it's going to clog it. 
Because what I'm really saying is everything we do, every choice we make is either creating a deeper connection to what we want or it's driving a disconnection. And so when we make choices, and by the way, this doesn't just apply to relationships, but how do we cleanse or clog our careers? How are we cleansing or creating deeper connection in our finances? How are we driving a disconnection by bad financial choices? You know, what about in our self-care? You know, like the whole thing about the nervous system. What things are we doing in our life that is cleansing our nervous system? And what things are we doing that's clogging it? And sometimes making that just two millimeter shift will make all difference. So for example, if I call one particular girlfriend every day after work, but she's just going to complain about her day and that's going to grate on me, what it's doing is it's creating stress chemicals in my body. Therefore, that phone call is a clog. And the way to change that into a cleanse is just by changing that habit. Don't call that friend. Listen to music on the way home or listen to a podcast, which is like one of my favorite things in the world to do. And those things make me feel happy and connected. And so the 80-20 aspect of this comes into play because it's not that I'm expecting people to be perfect, but just to understand that if 80% of the time you're making cleansing connected choices, and 20% of the time you can still have your chocolate cake and eat it too, and you'll be just fine because you're making more right choices than you are wrong choices. I love it. I love it. And that's a great story. I like the way you applied it to, to personal relationships. Uh, just a couple more questions, Mary. Of your five types of affirmations, and I, I really liked them, the, the releasing statements really, really stuck. Those are, are practical and powerful. Can you share uh, a favorite example? Well, you know, going right back to the beginning of the interview, we were talking about things in your life that become a brick wall between you and what you want. And so sometimes we have these things that trigger us. And mine was abandonment. So because I had um, some things happen in my early childhood that created a situation of abandonment. And so that carries with me to this day. And so my affirmation for that is I release my fear of abandonment. I am surrounded by unconditional love and support. And what that does for me is it, it allows me to state with conviction that I am no longer a victim to, to abandonment in my life. And I'm calling into myself that, that I want to replace that feeling, with, which is unconditional love and support. And it takes, and so what I'm really doing, and, and again, like the whole concept of affirmations, which I talk about quite a bit in the book, is that the, these are powerful ways to use words that are going to build a new neural network. So if I can build a neural network or I plant a seed of love and connection in my subconscious brain, then I am going to begin to perceive more unconditional love and support in my world on an everyday basis. But I also love to make the point that this is not something that happens overnight. When you use an affirmation like this, it really takes more of an extended period of time. It's not a quick fix. So for me, it took about 45 days. Of, of a daily practice and really strengthening a strengthening it every single day. And um, so I actually did this for one entire year. I wrote a page of affirmations a day. Wow. Well, and I like the realism behind that. And it seems to correspond also with some of the, the statements in the book about developing habits and how long that takes. Again, uh, a practical thing. So for uh, the, the last question about the book, Mary, I had read years ago, 
uh, Buckminster Fuller, kind of a weird guy, but but he he had a kind of a transcendent part of his personality that that appealed to me, and he he basically said that human beings, in their most essential forms, if we think of just raw energy as pattern integrities. You seem to start approaching that a little bit on page 170 when you wrote about sensing an invisible connective thread. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I sure can. So some of my just natural curiosities in my life were very um, esoteric, I suppose some people might say, but I just saw the intertwinings of science, spirituality, philosophy, personal development, even like when you peel back the layers in, in, in religions and you go back to the original teachings of them, the the underlying foundation that I found was very much the same. And my my philosophy with this book is that science and spirituality are really talking about the same thing, but they're using two different languages. And, you know, that that difference in vernacular has created this like exclusivity of the two when I, I kind of see it as all the same. And I'm very driven by that. An example of that would be um, I really love the people who wrote books like 100 years ago. And there was a, a guy that would his name is um, Paramahansa Yogananda. He came over here, I want to say, in the in the early 1900s, like maybe 1918, he came from India and he was a yogi. And so he would talk about, he would talk about in our deepest set of our mind that we had these grooves that were like the grooves of a record player that were building our behaviors and our habits just the same way as when the needle touched the record and followed the groove of the record player, it was going to produce a certain sound. But you know, neurologists in today's world, because this was not discovered back then, would just call that a neural pathway. And so that's a very good example of science and spirituality talking about the same phenomena using different vernacular. I love it. So looking ahead, what, what projects are you working on now, Mary, that you can share with the audience? Well, I'm, I'm always working on um, writing, more and more, I teach a lot of, I teach a lot of business development workshops and and do quite a bit of speaking. And it seems like one of my biggest joys right now is just going on as many podcasts as I possibly can. So I am in, I am uh, writing a second book. I'm the working title of it is the Communication Code, but I'm just very much in the beginning stages of that. So more to come from Mary Shores. Looking forward to it. And I once again, her book is Conscious. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Academy Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk. 